All right, welcome to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. This episode is a recording from our college worship gathering. If you are a college student in Waco, we'd love to have you join us any Sunday at 2 p.m. in the Sanctuary of First Baptist Church, Waco, where we learn about the way of Jesus together and discern what it looks like to live it out as a community. Today we're starting a new series called Upside Down Church. And over the course of this semester, we're going to be reading through the Sermon on the Mount together. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7, going passage by passage. So if you have a Bible with you today on your phone or in front of you, uh, we'd invite you to turn to, uh, to Matthew 5. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was the most important speech in the history of the world. That's a bold statement, but I'll say it again. The most important speech in the history of the world. So we're going to go through week by week and study what Jesus has to say to us. Today, we are going to be talking about Jesus' favorite topic. And as you read through the Gospels... What you find is that Jesus' favorite topic was called the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was obsessed with it. He, everywhere he went, he taught about the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew's term, but in Mark, he uses the same term, but he switches it, and he calls it the kingdom of God. And everywhere Jesus went, he talked about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, most of us think about like another realm, okay, like a faraway place called heaven that perhaps we go to when we die. But that's actually not exactly what Jesus meant by heaven. Yes, heaven is another realm, right? Just like we imagine. But surprisingly, Jesus says that heaven is actually coming down to us. In other words, the story of the Bible is not that we fly away and leave this world behind for it to burn. That the story of the Bible is Jesus returning and making this world new. Revelation 22, uh, there's a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21.5, Jesus saying, I will make all things new. I will redeem. I will recreate. I will make all things new. And so when Jesus comes to earth as a human, his first announcement in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 17, is this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice the language there. The kingdom of heaven has come near, your translation might say. It's amongst us, all right? He's not saying get ready to go to another place. He's saying this earth that we live in is being invaded by the life of heaven. There's a new opportunity available that you can live under the rule of God and you can find freedom and healing and new life both now and forevermore. Now, if this seems a little bit foggy to you, the, the best way that I've, I've found to, to explain this uh, is actually through a show called Stranger Things. How many of you have seen Stranger Things? Lots of hands around the room. All right, I've got to spoil a little bit of the show, okay, but, but don't try to act like you were going to go start streaming it tonight, all right? You've had like three, four years to watch it. It was not going to be tonight, all right? You've had your chance, and I won't give away um, too much anyway. So Stranger Things uh, is set in a small city called Hawkins, Indiana. It's a quiet and small town. Quiet until one day the four main characters, these young boys, start to sense that their world, their city, is being invaded by an alternative realm, okay, called the Upside Down. And this Upside Down is this parallel alternative reality that is just in their midst. 
and seems to be creeping closer and closer. Occasionally, someone finds a portal from which they can travel from Hawkins, Indiana into the Upside Down. And if you travel through that portal, if you dare, you find that there is this world that looks a lot like Hawkins, Indiana, except it has all the life sucked out of it. It's this parallel reality, and it is just in their midst. Except these portals cannot just be accessed at any time. The, The people of Hawkins can't come and go to the 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 upside down as they wish. They cannot be tamed. In fact, it even seems like the creature that lives in the upside down can come to Hawkins easier than the people of Hawkins can go to the upside down. And there's this sense that it is growing and that more and more it's taking over the city and that one day it may just end up swallowing it whole. Now, this is actually a perfect illustration for how the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven works in Jesus's framework here. The one big twist, of course, is that we live in the broken and messed up side of things, and that this kingdom of heaven is coming and advancing slowly, and it's invading our world instead. And so what we see Jesus saying here in Matthew 4 is he says, he's essentially saying a portal has opened, right, from heaven to earth, and through that portal stepped the person of Jesus. And Jesus was this person in our world from another world. And he's not just trying to get us to go back through the portal with him to his world. He's actually wants to show us how to live in our world as if we were living in his world. He wants to build a a colony. He wants to build a new community that starts to live life here and now in our place as if we were living in heaven in the kingdom of God. So that's what's happening in the Gospels is Jesus steps through the portal and says, I am bringing heaven to earth. And there's a sense that it is coming slowly and growing like a mustard seed and that one day all of our world will become invaded by this kingdom of heaven as Jesus makes all things new. So as we get to Matthew chapter 5, we read here in verse number 1, Um, that Jesus goes up on a mountainside and he sits down and the disciples come to him and he began to teach them. And so as Jesus is sitting on this mountainside and he begins to teach his disciples, he's teaching them what life is like on the other side of the portal. And he's teaching them how such a life could actually be lived out right here and right now in the very places that we live. And so what we're about to read from Jesus here in Matthew five through seven, as I said earlier, is the most influential speech in the history of the world that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Alicia read for us the first section of it just a few minutes ago. This is a section that we call the Beatitudes, all right? And they are nine statements of blessing. And, uh, and let's just sort of look at them again and see one more time who Jesus is blessing. Jesus blesses the poor in spirit. He, he blesses those who mourn. He blesses the meek. He blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He blesses the merciful, blesses the pure in heart. He blesses the peacemakers. He blesses those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He blesses those who are even insulted. Now, I want to walk through these verses just a little bit with you today, and I want to point out four things about uh, these Beatitudes that I think will help us understand the kingdom of God and what God is doing all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. 
Um, and so the first one is this. Uh, number one is that uh, this, these Beatitudes, uh, they, they describe undesirable circumstances, okay? Each one of them describes undesirable circumstances. The first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? This is Dallas Willard's translation of that verse right here. That Jesus is saying, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, undesirable circumstance. You start to look at the other list of things that Jesus says blesses, and you'll notice that each of them are unfortunate circumstances, undesirable. I mean, who wants to mourn, right? Who wants to be persecuted? Who wants to be insulted? Being meek and being pure, they may sound nice to us now, but they get you no points in our world today. To be merciful or to make peace, the only reason you have to do that is because someone has wronged you. No thanks, I'll take a pass on that. Even those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the reason they do so is they've experienced firsthand the pain of the world not being right. They've experienced the ache of wanting, needing it to be put back together. So every situation that Jesus names here, all nine of these are undesirable circumstances that we might look at and say, thanks, but no thanks, I don't want that life. The second thing that we can learn here is that these undesirable circumstances result in an unexpected blessing. You'll notice that, that Jesus blesses each one of these groups of people. And that's interesting because in our world today, these are not the kind of people that we think of as blessed, right? We may think that they're more cursed than they are blessed. And I have a hunch that as we think about our world and the kind of people that our world celebrates, that we might think a very different kind of person is blessed instead. So if, what Jesus is not saying here much to our surprise is that the rich and the beautiful and the strong and the independent and the smart and the powerful and the talented are blessed. No, much to our surprise, it's the meek and the merciful and the poor and the spirit and the persecuted and the insulted. And not only is the who surprising, but it doesn't really even make sense at the outset why those people would be blessed, okay? If you ask the people who are mourning, I think they would prefer not to be mourning, right? And they'd probably say, hey, once I stop mourning, then maybe I'll be blessed. Why am I blessed when I'm mourning? Uh, if you talk to those who are hungering and thirsting for the world to be made right again, they would say, why am I blessed? I wish things were very different from they are. If I'm insulted, why in that moment am I blessed? This is a counterintuitive statement. It doesn't really make a lot of sense immediately. If you went around Thanksgiving dinner, you know, your mom always makes you say something that you're thankful for, and it's a little forced and awkward, but you do it anyway, right? Uh, if you get to that moment, uh, mourning and being persecuted and insulted and poor in spirit probably aren't going to show up on your list of the things that you're thankful for uh, that calendar year, all right? And so what we notice is that the people that everyone else in our world would call cursed, that Jesus instead calls blessed. And so here's the way that I like to put it, is that Jesus is saying these people are fortunately unfortunate. <laughs> that the world looks at their circumstances and says, man, wouldn't want to be you. And Jesus says, no, you are fortunate. You're fortunately fortunate, unfortunate. And so, but why is that? Why are those people actually fortunately unfortunate? 
Why would Jesus even say this? Well, this leads us to our, our third thing here, is that unexpected, this unexpected blessing is marked by a promise of reversal. So if you look at all nine of those statements, you notice that they're all paired with some kind of reversal that's going to happen, all right? Is that the persecuted, they're not going to go extinct, like you may think, that theirs is actually the kingdom of heaven. It's a reversal. The hungry and, and thirsty, they're not going to run out of resources, like you might think. Uh, they're actually going to be filled. Uh, the merciful, they're, they're not going to be taken advantage of, like we might fear that they will actually receive mercy themselves. That the meek, they're, they're not going to be trampled over like we might expect. No, they will actually inherit the earth. In all nine situations, there is a great reversal that is promised. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, we don't exactly get the details. It's a little bit cloudy. But I think the clue to figuring it out is in the speaker, is that Jesus will make it so. You see, it's not that the poor in spirit are like automatically in the kingdom of heaven just because they're poor in spirit, right? It's not like you think, okay, all I got to do is like be poor in spirit and then I guess the kingdom is mine. Okay, Jesus is not introducing a different formula for salvation right here. All you got to do is be meek and merciful and the kingdom is yours. No, the peacemakers and the mourners, they're not automatically blessed if that were true. And Jesus would be irrelevant other than just being the one who delivered us this message. Just as we know that we are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus' death on the cross for us. So what is Jesus trying to say here? It's that because of his death for us, the hungry and the insulted can rejoice because the kingdom has been made available even to them, to those that no one else would bless. The doors have been thrown open. And if they just turn to Jesus, the great reverser, it will be so because he will make it so. So, so far we said that the, the Beatitudes paint for us undesirable circumstances, uh, but then that lead to an unexpected blessing marked by a promise of reversal. But the good news gets even better and better because here's number four. This reversible is um, number four, available now. It's available now. So lean into this right here. Don't miss this. That when we hear it's available now, what we tend to usually think is that you have a chance to opt in now so that you experience it one day when you die later. But that's not what we mean by available now. That what we actually mean is that when Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, he said this promise of reversal is available now and forever. Okay, so remember the portal for a minute, our image is that when Jesus stepped through this portal into our world, that his plan was not ultimately just to invite us back into his world, but it was to teach us how to live in this world as if we lived in his world. His dream, Jesus' dream, was to create a community called the church that would live out an upside-down way of life together on the ground right where they live in Waco, Texas, and that the world would onlook and see, wow, that is a way to live. And they would be drawn to the person of Jesus who made it so. And so here's what I want us to see ultimately today. Let's piece all the, put all the pieces together. This is what Jesus is saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We'll return to this time and time again. Here it is. is that God is launching a new project called the Kingdom of God. 
And he's fe- it's featuring an upside-down community called the church, pursuing an upside-down way of life based on Jesus. This is Jesus' announcement that he came to bring, and this is what he wants to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, that God is launching a new project on earth called the Kingdom of Heaven, featuring an upside-down community called the church, pursuing an upside-down way of life based on Jesus. Here's a way to make this really practical and tangible. Okay, you've seen uh, a million movie trailers in your life, right? So you kind of know the drill. You know how they like to hype up the movie uh, so that they can get your, uh, get your attention, get your money. Uh, and so uh, basically in the trailer, what you want to do is uh, show how appealing the cast is, right? And so, uh, you know, uh, the producer wants to uh, show Zac Efron so that the ladies go, oh, Zac Efron's in that movie? I got to see that, right? Um, so that the guys go, oh, Zendaya's in the movie? Oh, got to go see that. So the older ladies go, oh, Hugh Jackman's in the movie, uh, got to go see that. And the next thing you know, two weeks later, we all have the, 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 um, the soundtrack for The Greatest Showman memorized. It's, it's just incredible. That's how movies work, right? That's how marketing goes. But listen to how God markets a movie instead. Listen to how Jesus does things. That in God's movie trailer, it's featuring a teenager with uncontrollable acne, an overweight grandmother, a family who can't afford their light bill, a college student stricken with depression. And you look at it at the the outset and you say, who's gonna go see that? But God says, wait till you see what I'm building here, okay? That I'm launching this new project and I wanna feature those that no one else would feature. It's gonna be an upside down community. I'm gonna teach them a new way to live. It's gonna be an upside down way of life. And those that no one will bless, the poor, the meek, the mourning, the hungry, the merciful, the insulted, the more fringe they are, the more central they're going to be to my new project. And this is the Jesus way that upside down is right side up. Um, So here's my final challenge to you based on where we've been going today. If this is what God is doing, if he's launching this new project uh, called the Kingdom of Heaven, featuring this upside down um, community called the church, pursuing an upside down way of life based on Jesus, then I want in. Let's go. How do we do this? What does that look like for me to pursue this project with God? But as I alluded to earlier, the the Beatitudes are not a formula for blessing, okay? Uh, Here's a good quote from uh, Stanley Hauerwas that I think helps us sort this out. He says, too often these characteristics of the Beatitudes are turned into ideals that we must strive to attain. As ideals, they can become formulas for power rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age brought by Christ. Thus, Jesus does not tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit or meek or peacemakers. He simply says that many who are called into the kingdom will find themselves so constituted. In other words, what what he's saying here is that the Beatitudes were never meant to be the next to-do list, okay? That you start checking off as many boxes as you can and cross your fingers that you'll be counted blessed. That's just a new way of legalism, okay? That instead, the Beatitudes, what's happening here, are an announcement that if this is you in any way, then good news that you are blessed. You are fortunately unfortunate. And so if there's any way that you, that, that you are the opposite of what the world celebrates or the opposite of what you think God would celebrate, there is a place for you and not just a place that the kingdom is actually going to feature people like you. So turn to Jesus because he is true to his promises. 
And so if this is not true of you, as you look at the list, uh, that doesn't mean you're left out of the kingdom, okay? Salvation is by faith, not by misfortune. (laughs) But it might mean, possibly, sometimes, that we're running upward while Jesus is reaching downward. There's a verse that's uh, been stuck in my mind the past few weeks, and I just want to share it with you. It's from uh, Matthew chapter 16, and it says this, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. These are tough words that they ask if we're willing to take our hands off the steering wheel of life and if we're willing to offer up control to Jesus. But if this verse is true, here are a couple things I want to encourage us to pay attention to in our lives. Some questions to ask yourself. Number one, where am I trying to be in control of my life? Uh, What goals and plans am I not willing to give up? Where am I trying to climb the ladder? Uh, um, Where am I trying to become what the world celebrates? Where am I searching for significance outside of Christ? Where am I trying to find my identity? Where am I yearning to be loved? Where am I trying to find myself outside of him? Because each of these things that I just named is really an attempt to be blessed without God. It's saying, I don't need God for my significance. I can create my own significance. I don't need God to run my life. I can run my own life. I don't need God to tell me who I am. I can discover who I am on my own. And that's so easy to do in our world today. But the world doesn't work like that. That doesn't work out for us. And so listen to the words of Jesus when he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so, friends, what I want to land on here today is just the idea that we need to surrender ourselves to God. And we need to take up a posture of, God, here I am, all of me, every part, every centimeter. I want to be about your kingdom. I want to be about this new project. And I offer myself to you. Would you take this offering that I have? And would you make something out of it? I want to lose my life for you so that I might find it. Our band's going to come up and lead us in one final song, uh, but before they do, let me just pray for us as they're, as they're making their way up. Right where you are, would you just bow your head, and uh, would you just talk to God for just a second about whatever's going on in your head, whatever's going on in your heart, what are you processing, what is he showing you, what is he saying to you, what is he teaching you, just bow your head, close your eyes, talk to him for a second. Where does surrender need to take root in your life? Where do you need to receive the announcement that you are blessed despite what the world says? Lord, we love you. We we thank you so much for this good news. We thank you so much that the kingdom of God is at hand, that you're doing something new in this world. God, we offer ourselves to you today. We say, make the most of us. Use us as salt and as light on this campus. Do something in our lives. We want to be yours. In your name we pray. Amen.